The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We are one day before the election. We're gonna we're doing our episode, our main episode this week, one day early, just because Tuesday, our normal day, is election day, and election days are sort of. Uh, they're almost like kind of like an information black hole. Um, it's all down to the voting, and um, we don't really know new information. And there's always a lot of what I would call like non-information on election day. Uh, basically, everywhere I, I have never seen an election day that didn't start with TV reports of you know uh, m- bigger turnout than anybody's ever seen. Um, <laughs> and Long I, lines. Yeah, I, I, and and uh, we, I guess, in fairness, we have been in an era of rising voter participation. Um, certainly, if you go back, if you go back like twenty years, there's there's more people voting today than than there than there was before. This is actually the flip side of a lot of the kind of hand wringing, which in many ways is is reasonable about partisan polarization that it does drive turnout it it drives turnout there's no two ways about it and there's a lot about our current political environment that you know there's a lot bad about our current political environment but there's also a lot of things that americans used to lament about American politics that we now have in spades. Um, so anyway, we are going to, since it's it's one day out, it's sort of like the last day you get any like real information uh, about, about the election. I know people really want to have some idea what's going on. And it's the day before, as I said, you get the non-information, which is just sort of crazy town, all sorts of anecdotal things that often is not just end up not meaning anything. So, uh, and 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 today we are joined by uh, not only my co-host David Tainter. Hey, Josh. Hey. Uh, also, uh, one of our colleagues from our DC office, Cam Joseph, who does not exclusively uh, campaign reporting, but is our campaign and elections reporter. So he's been around the country over the last uh, few months, uh, doing reporting uh, on the ground in various places where there's there's highly anticipated or tight elections. And if you look at our if you look at TPM today, our our our, our website, it's like it's like all cam all the time <laughs> with <laughs> with a with a bunch of uh, with a bunch of pieces that sort of, you know, kind of the overview of the Senate, the overview of the House races, the overview of the uh, governor's races. So Cam, hello. Welcome to the Josh Marshall podcast. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well before we get started, let me uh, briefly uh, share some words from our sponsor, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Want in on New York's favorite cold brew? Of course you do. Head over to Grady'sColdBrew.com for free shipping on all their greatest hits. Grady's famous co- coffee concentrate is cold brewed, delivering the strongest, smoothest, most refreshing iced coffee on the market, using a special blend of Indonesian and Ethiopian beans and chicory imported from France. Grady's has a touch of natural sweetness without any added sugar. Grady's is independently owned and operated and has been brewing in New York City since 2011. That's that's true. I've actually been myself. I've been a Grady's consumer. I I, I feel like it's it's must have been almost from the beginning because I remember I think it was Hurricane Sandy. I remember uh, getting like a special delivery <laughs> because everybody <laughs> through the like, storm stronger than the storm. Yeah. The, well, no, I mean, my recollection of this is very clear. Um, this was uh, much, much earlier uh, in Grady's history, and I guess I had already somehow or another I I had already made clear publicly that I was a, like a big uh, Grady's fran- uh, fan, and as as 
people know from the East Coast, you know, when you have a big storm coming in, everybody, you know, kind of the proverbial, they run to the, yeah, you know, you're the market, up, yeah. you get bread and milk and stuff like that. And we were like almost out of Grady's. And and it was like, uh, you know, what 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 to do? I'm not sure if it was Sandy because that would have been that would have been 2012. Maybe Irene. Yeah, it was, but it was a long time ago. It was it was uh, it was a long time ago. Anyway, uh, that was when we were talking about uh, Grady's and chicory and no added sugar. Oh yeah, uh, Grady's is independently owned and operated and has been brewing in New York City since 2011. Ready to get a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. So. Uh, and and as I always mention, we're like hardcore uh, consumers of Grady's here at TPM. I, I think not just in the not just in the New York office. You guys you guys get it down there in DC too, right? Yeah, you guys started setting it down here. And frankly, I think uh, without the Grady's, I might not make it through election night tomorrow. Cool. Night, well, there's so. a you know a, that that is a uh, that is a legitimate testimonial uh, on behalf of of, <laughs> of Grady's. So, Cam, here's the first thing I want to I want to ask you. There's uh, been a lot of kind of anecdotal, but also some very specific uh, information that over the last two weeks, there's been a number of House races that Republicans were fairly confident that they were, you know, if not locked down, pretty good shape, that seem to get vulnerable late. And that is not an, un- that is, you know, that's not an uncommon thing late in the cycle when you start getting more information. Walk us through that. What are, What are the races that have appeared to become, uh, you know, more contested very late in the cycle? And how do we know? Like, what do we base that on when we make, when we say things like that? Well, there's a combination of things. And the biggest one is campaigns and uh, super PACs putting their money where their mouth is. And what we've seen, and this is kind of a weird year, because the biggest thing we've seen that I've never seen before is... House Democratic challengers outraising the Republican incumbents they're facing almost across the board. And sometimes in, in, in cases that it's you know two to one, three to one fundraising edge. And that doesn't happen, frankly. The basically liberal donors just hair on fire approach to this election is putting a lot of races on the board that might not have been. And so it's a little harder this year to suss out how much of this is the National Republican Congressional Committee and the super PAC on their side, the Congressional Leadership Fund, going, oh, shoot, we're getting outspent in a huge way. We don't want a surprise and coming in with a half million dollars, a million dollars in the closing weeks. Uh, to shore up a candidate and how much of this is those candidates are suddenly in trouble they kind of didn't really worry about them and all of a sudden the polls are shifting and it's kind of a combination uh, often one feeds into the other but we've seen this in more than a half dozen races over the last couple weeks uh, where all of a sudden either the NRCC or the CLF is dumping a million dollars into a race that you know I was hearing from them weeks earlier yeah we're not really that worried about it we're keeping an eye but we should be fine uh, and, and I think the most interesting the one that is close to my heart uh, because I've covered Alaska a lot over the years is Don Young is the Dean of the House delegation uh, all of a sudden the CLF over the weekend dumped in six figures to be making phone calls to help Don Young who literally was on nobody's radar even up to about a week ago and Young is kind of like a political cockroach there's been a bunch of races that he looked dangerously vulnerable in and somehow pulled them out and Alaska is very hard to pull uh, but he's in a real race it seems that I, I would be surprised if it's if it's a double-digit race at the end of the day I, I think he probably still grinds it out but wouldn't bet on it uh, other candidates, uh, Jaime Herrera Butler out in Washington, uh, is in like a slightly GOP-leaning district. Uh, she's kind of a, a, a talented, uh, relatively moderate uh, Republican out there who everybody thought was going to be fine. All of a sudden, uh, the CLF came in with a half million dollars for her. Uh, there, there's an open seat uh, in the Tampa suburbs that leans Republican. That all of a sudden Republicans are dumping a bunch of million. About I think it was five hundred thousand. Last I checked, it might have grown since then. So it's a seat the Democrats are hoping to pick up. And uh, Dennis Ross retired there. All of a sudden, uh, Democrats think they got a real shot. Uh, there's a blue dog candidate down there. I believe it's a blue dog. Uh, I know that Stephanie Murphy from the adjoining district, who's that one of the heads of the blue dogs, is helping her. A lot. But uh, so, I mean, these races, it's kind of like 
uh, panic whack-a-mole on the GOP side right now. And right. a lot of these races, I think, they'll end up holding. But this, you know, one of the signs of a wave is all of a sudden you see a bunch of money coming in into these unexpected places. And we're seeing that across the House map. All of a sudden, uh, these races that were marginally competitive, uh, Scott Perry up in, in uh, central Pennsylvania is another example, uh, are looking very, very tight. And the, you know, and everybody remembers the big Georgia six race with Karen Handel uh, beating John Ossoff and kind of broke a bunch of liberals' hearts earlier in the cycle. All of a sudden, Handel's in a toss-up race. Yeah, I noticed, I noticed that uh, Cook just, I think, today moved that into the toss-up. Yeah, no, it's always reassuring. Dave Wasserman over at Cook is is very smart, and it's always good when I am reporting and thinking something, and all of a sudden I see Dave doing the same thing. It means that that I'm not crazy, um, and definitely check them out uh, as well as us to kind of get a, a lay of the land. But uh, yeah, it's it's a real jump ball, and and public and private polling has all of a sudden shown handle down within the margin of error in the last couple of days. And Stacey Abrams at the top of the ticket there is feeling huge black turnout, and that could really pay some down ballot benefit to uh, the Democrats running there. So, you know, it, it. I'm not guaranteeing any of these races is going to flip, but Democrats basically have uh, about 16 seats that they think they're going to flip that Republicans are not disagreeing with right now. There's another 10 that are heavily contested on both sides that Democrats think that uh, they're better situated than Republicans do. Uh, and just those seats by themselves, the seats that I, I would say maybe don't lean Democrat but tilt Democrat, if I had to put money on it, I'd bet on the Democrats, they're going to win. And just those by themselves, if they sweep them, give Democrats the majority. But then only just barely, right? Like, uh, like it'd be like 25 seats, so like you're kind of like a two-point, like a two-seat. Like sure, those would do it, but, yeah, all, but close. Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And, and the caveat here is, you know, if everybody's wrong by a couple points about the assumptions about voter turnout and the models are wrong, uh, we could see a, a slight shift towards the GOP that ends up flipping a lot of seats one way or the other. But that could also happen in the Democrats' direction with all of these pure toss-up seats. And you know, I, I think that the the, the lowest prediction, you know, the, be the best rosiest prediction of any Republican I've talked to over the last couple of days has been, we're going to lose the majority by about three seats. We're going to be down about 26. And that assumes that every single race that is tied goes to the GOP, which, you know, I, I don't, I'm not sure how big a wave this is going to be, but clearly Democrats have the momentum right now. Uh, and you know, about a set, the, the seven-point lead on the, the national ballot, generic ballot, has been pretty steady over the last couple of months. And while these districts are GOP-leaning, uh, there's just a ton of opportunities on the map for Democrats to break through. And I, I think that, you know, there's a, still within the realm of the possibility that Republicans hang on to the House, but I think it's at least as likely Democrats' top 40 seats picking up in the House. Yeah, that's, that's kind of, I mean, you, you, you focus on a point that I have been thinking a lot about sometimes hopefully other times with a lot of anxiety that you do, as you said that it seems that you know nothing guaranteed but there do seem about 25 seats that are you know maybe 15 of them quite likely to go to the democrats another 10 or a dozen pretty likely and that's just about enough for a majority and then but then you've got like you know depending on which uh you know kind of prognosticator you look at you see different numbers but you know 40 50 seats that yeah. are legitimate toss-ups and uh you know they as there's a whole bunch of things there you could have you know just slight slight uh you know pollsters modeling the electorate a little bit off in either direction you could have it you know massively turn in one direction or another um but yeah it's it's you know one thing you know one thing you said about um about uh fundraising i just saw an ad i posted it on um on the site from this i, I can't remember her initials it, it's uh texas 31 uh, the candidate is Hagar, something, something, Hagar. MJ Hagar. MJ yeah. Hagar. All right. Now, this is sort of like a, a race that, that most of the prognosticators consider likely Republican. So sort of like, not impossible, but like, you know, you're talking it has to get into big wave territory to get there. Um, but, you know, a real race. And one thing I noticed, 
I don't think it's actually been polled. I couldn't find a public poll of that race. But in any case, the point that what I wanted to mention is that I looked and she seems to have outraised him by like three to one. Yeah. And, and that was one of those cases. Uh, she, she's got a really impressive resume, a female veteran, uh, a senior member, if I'm remembering correctly, she was a helicopter pilot that got shot down. She's got tattoos to cover her shrapnel wounds. Um, and she had this amazing campaign video that all of a sudden uh, vaulted her into insane fundraising numbers that I, you know, I frankly, I, I think she's still the underdog in that race. I've, I've heard about some private polling that makes it seem like that's unlikely to happen. But the fact that Republicans are having to go in and spend for John Carter in a district right. that uh, president, you know, the, 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 that actually has moved a, a little bit away from, uh, you know, towards the Democrats. You know, Trump won it by about 12. Uh, Romney had won it by 20. Uh, but it's, it's, on the field, and it's a, right. it's a place where Republicans are having to spend. And this is the first time since Citizens United that we've actually seen Democrats with a fundraising advantage. Now, is is that one of those races that 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 the that the Republican committees have gone in late with her? I mean, and I want to be clear with listeners. I mean, as I said, this is the the prognosticators rate it as a likely Republican. That means like it's pretty Republican and pretty likely yeah, to stay and frankly, Republican. Yeah, I mean, as amazing a candidate as she is, I, I think that's. If Democrats are winning that seat, that isn't the tipping point seat for the House. That's all of a sudden Democrats are talking about a 50 seat gain and we're talking about a wave that I, I think that is on the edge, but not really kind of it. It's it's could happen, but it's unlikely to happen. Right, right. Um, but it also and, but, shows I mean, you there, that there's, there's candidates if, yeah. all over the map like that. And, and you know, we've seen. The actual campaigns, the Democrats are out raising the Republican incumbents. Usually, if you're feeling good about a House challenger, they're raising you know five hundred thousand dollars in a quarter, maybe a million in their final quarter. Some of these Democrats, Hager included, were bringing in two, three million dollars in a quarter. That is just un, you know, unbelievable, and, and it's it's put these Republicans on defense in a lot of places they weren't expecting. Um, and force the super PACs to expand. And the big difference this year is Michael Bloomberg's all of a sudden stepped up for Democrats. And while Sheldon Adelson is spending a huge amount on the GOP side, uh, Bloomberg is almost matching that on the Democratic side and has kind of neutralized the super PAC advantage. At the same time, candidates get much better deals on their ad rates. And so when you're spending a million dollars as a candidate, it's more like you know two, three million dollars as a super PAC in terms of how many ad points you're actually getting. And so in these, these races where Democrats have a huge fundraising advantage and caught the Republicans off guard, that is making a huge difference. And so it, it's feeling to me like a big wave. And, and I don't know how deep that wave runs. I think that one of the things President Trump has done over the last month, even though I think he's hurt the Republicans in the House overall, uh, he's helped shore up a few of these you know, pretty solidly Republican districts that the only way Democrats were going to win them is if Republicans didn't show up. Right. Uh, so that might be limiting the upper limit of what we're talking about in this wave. But I, I think we're going to see a lot of surprises on election night. I think we're going to see a lot of races that, you know, I kind of had my eye on that I might not even have mentioned in my overview uh, that could break. And, and that includes someone like Don Young that I mentioned. That includes someone like Steve King, who was caught totally sleeping in Iowa. And, and I know our, our readers are, are pretty uh, fascinated by it, to say the least. Well, so here, uh, let me ask you one thing about King, because he's actually, we're, 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 we're thinking along the same lines, because he was the next one I was going to bring up. Obviously, for all the reasons that I think, as and, as you just suggested, our our reader, you know, we've been writing about Steve King forever for all the kind of uh, all his craziness and all of his, you know, I don't I don't know if he's become more of a white nationalist in the last couple of years, but he has definitely become he is he has become more and more overt. But the, the thing that interests me, and this is what you were just kind of alluding to, you will have, and and he's an example of something that I think will be. There will be more examples, whether they lose or not is another question. But you have these cases often in the redder districts where someone just didn't know they were going to be in a tight race and yeah. they find out too late. So walk us through 
that, that's a, I assume you saw this thing where he he's running this ad from 2014. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, he didn't even have time to make new ads. I mean, <laughs> or, or even like redub the ad, right? You can like redub an ad. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, tell us I mean, about It's kind Steve of amazing because yeah. in that ad, it kind of cracked me up. He says something along the lines of like, our country's going the wrong direction and slipping away, which obviously as a Republican in a Republican district in 2014 with Obama as president was, was a very effective argument. It sounds a little weird with President Trump in office if you're a big Trump supporter, which King is. Uh, I, I think King probably wins. I don't think it's a slam dunk. We've seen some last minute polls that show him up, you know, four or five. Uh, and, and he basically uh, committed a, a huge error by not taking this race seriously. And, you know, it's a district that President Trump won by almost 30 points, but it's also a district that President Obama only lost by about a point in 2008. It's one of those big swing districts that, that swung big and hard away from Democrats. Um, and, you know, I think King has a very different reputation in Iowa than he does nationally. Let me ask you one question. So yeah. my understanding, this is, I think this is sort of a district that has a lot of, uh, you know, agricultural communities tend to be mm -hmm. wider, tend to be older, but then has a few, um, you know, cities that we would call pretty small from the East Coast, but ones that are, that have a, you know, are, are very different. So I guess that gives it, you know, it's not exclusively those probably what, what Steve King considers his base. No. And, and it's interesting because, you know, I mean, it's a huge farming and pork community, uh, but that a lot of the pork uh, producers, you know, a huge amount of Hispanic influx, uh, no, they're not voting at very high rates. Uh, and, and, you know, the Ames is where Iowa State University is. There, there's a little, little uh, group of Democratic voters around there. Uh, Sioux City is pretty conservative, but not dyed-in-the-wool Republican. Uh, and they tend to be, you know, more business conservatives. I, I mean, frankly, like, there's a reason Steve King is who he is and that he's kept winning. It's a very conservative district. But it's not a district that is absolutely impossible for Democrats to win. And they made a real effort with uh, former Iowa First Lady Christy Vilsack in 2012. He ended up beating her pretty easily. But he took that race really seriously. He spent about $4 million. And he's been outspent in this race dramatically. And so, you know, I, I mean, I, I think it's unlikely. But the fact that we're talking about Steve King shows what type of year we're in. And, you know, if you look just at the, the toss-up races uh, that are all of a sudden looking not great for Republicans. You know, someone like Tom MacArthur in New Jersey was somebody that everyone thought was going to be a competitive race, but he probably would be fine. And he let, that looks like a pure coin flip to me. And you know, he, he's he's known because he was the so-called moderate who helped uh, hit on the the uh, agreement with the hardline conservatives to get Obamacare repeal through the House. Uh, Karen Handel that we talked about, you know, that was a race that once she won her special, we're like, okay, it's probably not going to happen in the general. Uh, we just saw a big, really close contested race uh, for Troy Paulderson in the Columbus area in, in Ohio, where he ground out a win in a special election in August. All of a sudden, he's back on this list because his opponent, even though he lost, Danny O'Connor is raising and spending a lot more money than him, and Republicans have had to go back in there. Uh, you know, Dave Bratt, we've talked about for a couple months, uh, but but you know, all these races seem to be shifting. You know, there's there's more and more races that are being added to. You know, where, where I really feel like these are jump ball races that even a couple of weeks ago, seeing the polling and seeing the spending, I wasn't convinced. And, you know, I saw this in 2006. I saw this in 2008, some late breaking races. We saw it the opposite direction in 2010 and even in 2014. Uh, people getting caught by surprise and not all of them lose. But that usually indicates that the party that they're a member of, it, it something's wrong. Right. And now, we're seeing that shift. Did I see... Did I I think I saw that, you know, when, when Steve King went, and I think he went up with that ad like Friday or maybe at the earliest mm -hmm. Thursday, I thought I saw that his campaign as of now, I guess it wouldn't have been, I'm not sure whether it was as of that day or the last reporting period, but he only seemed to have like $150,000 in his, you know, in the bank account for his campaign. Um, yeah, we, which is kind of astounding given that he has been one of the best fundraisers in the Republican Party in past years. I mean, I, I don't remember the exact figure he brought in in 2012, but he is a Tea Party darling and raised uh, upwards of $4 million for that race, if I recall correctly. And 
he just didn't this time. Yeah, I mean, he's, cer- <laughs> he's certainly someone who, like, you know, he's got a big, I mean, maybe a little less so now with the things that have happened in the last few weeks, but he's always had a big cable news, you know, presence. So he's definitely the type who, you know, with direct mail and sort of, you know, digital solicitations could raise like a ton of money. I mean, absolute yeah. ton of money. So, yeah, it's crazy that he... That's campaign malpractice that he's in the position. Yeah, no, and, totally. And, you know, he's maybe the most controversial, but there are plenty of other Republicans who uh, the the national folks are tearing out their hair and furious that they're having to spend money in a, in a year where Republicans don't have a bunch of money to waste right. uh, to shore up these guys. And, uh, you know, Ted Budd in North Carolina is one that the Republicans are pissed off that they're having to spend money on. Uh, Mia Love in Utah looks like she's she's more likely than not to lose and, and that's the salt lake city seat, basically yeah it's 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 mostly suburban but it, it's almost all in salt lake county and you know it's these dyed in the wool republicans who've really never warmed up to love she's not she's underperformed in that district the last two elections uh and also hate romney don't hate romney they love romney they hate trump and right. so that's you know if i had to say i think she's going to lose and that's a race that has a very good uh, lo- local candidate, Ben McAdams, who's a, a Salt Lake County mayor. He's very well known in the district, and you know has, has run in a lot of the district already. Who, and, who was the guy? Who was the guy that she beat? And that was, she just won in 2016, right? Or am I? No? Uh, she won uh, 14 okay. against Jim Matheson, uh, who was okay. a longtime Blue Dog Democrat back when the Blue Dogs had a lot of power. That's an interesting thing that's happening now. You know, Blue Dogs were kind of what Democrats made their majority on the last time. And there are obviously a lot of Democrats who were much more conservative than most of the party uh, and represented these districts that you know, should be Republican, frankly. And when the 2010 wave came, they wiped them all out. I mean, I think there's 50 something members. And all but about a dozen got lost their races or retired. Uh, we're seeing a bit of a resurgence. The Blue Dog Democrats think they, they have a shot of picking up, you know, maybe a dozen seats uh, this time around, maybe even more, and, and could almost double their numbers in Congress. And once again, if we're looking at a Democratic majority, it's because of members who, you know, maybe are not as doctrinaire liberal as, as a lot of folks might want to see on the left, but can win in their districts at least in a year like this. And I think the big question, if, if Democrats do win the House now, is w- how do they manage keeping those folks in office and try and hold the majority in 2020 uh, when it's not clear things are going to be quite as easy for their party? Right. Well, that's a good segue to the Senate, because obviously in the Senate, we have a battleground that is almost all in red states. There's a couple exceptions where uh, in in Arizona, I'm not even sure at the beginning of the cycle we would have really thought of that as as non-red, but it's clearly very closely contested. It seems to me that cinema has a very very slight advantage, um, but clearly that's a, a jump race. So, yeah. but but you've got the big ones where you know like Heitkamp, which seems really tough right now. Uh, the Democrats had some hopes in Tennessee. That seems. Uh, you know, considerably longer shot right now. Missouri, where Claire McCaskill really, you know, <laughs> in some ways by rights should have should have lost her reelection match in 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 2012, and and then she had she was blessed with her opponent, and then she pulled through. So what are you know? It's a what, tough map, but yeah, it's inter- you know, it's interesting to me. This is harder to game out the Senate this year than the House. Because we obviously, we have two countervailing currents. One of them is that clearly there is a bit of a Democratic enthusiasm gap. Uh, the Democrats are, are going to vote. Uh, we're seeing Republicans voting at very high levels too, but not as high as the Democrats in most places. But at the same time, these are deep red states and President Trump has polarized the electorate so severely that somebody who has won a lot of crossover votes in the past, like Joe Donnelly in Indiana or like Phil Bredesen in Tennessee, it becomes harder for them to do so this time around. And it's unclear to me which of those things is going to prevail. I think it's probably going to be a mix of the two. But, you know, basically we're talking about a a map that uh, Democrats are panicking about even before Trump won. And, and frankly, his win probably has saved a lot of these Democratic seats because 
you know, there's a lot of states that Trump carried that are off the map right now. The Democrats are going to win re-election in Wisconsin, in Pennsylvania, in Ohio, in Michigan. It looks like Joe Manchin's going to win in West Virginia. That probably doesn't happen if Hillary Clinton's president right now. But right. at the same time, you know, these Democrats, there, there's five Democrats in states that Trump won by 19 points or more. And you men mentioned uh, McCaskill and Donnelly. Uh, and then Phil Bredesen, who's, who's mounting a very credible, serious race in Tennessee that I think is closer than people realize. Uh, I've been hearing some conflicting uh, numbers from both Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, about I've, heard, that this, race, I've heard the same thing. I would not count him out. And Democrats are feeling, you know, until about six weeks ago, Democrats still thought it was a remote but real possibility they could win the Senate. And then the Brett Kavanaugh hearings happened, and that hurt, that, that energized Republicans. That put a lot of these red state Democrats in tough positions, including Bredesen, who said he'd vote for, he would have voted for Kavanaugh, and Heidi Heitkamp, who I, you know, I think some Democrats concede uh, was probably going to lose anyways, and her vote against Kavanaugh was was more of a moral statement. Um, that you know it, it hurt, but all of a sudden in the last week, uh, and, and I think this this really started shifting uh, with, with the mail bombs sent to a bunch of prominent Democrats, and then the, the tragedy in Pittsburgh. Where President Trump's fear-mongering on immigration was not cutting through as well, he was, and, and that some of these moderates in conserv, you know, conservative-leaning but not, you know, have voted for Democrats in the past, voters in these states, paused, mm -hmm. and we've only seen a limited data. Part of this is we're kind of flying blind, De you know, frankly. Smart campaigns rarely pull in the last week of the election because at that point they can't make decisions off of it. They've decided what their last ad is going to be. Already. So we're flying a little bit blind, but th there's some signs uh, that Democrats are doing better in these places. And you know, about 10 days ago, I would have said I think Claire McCaskill's done. Today, I think she's got a shot. I you know I probably still rather be Holly and her, but that's going to be a very close race. And Tennessee is the same thing. Uh, Phil Bredesen has seen booming early vote turnout. It's hard to compare because there hasn't really been a serious midterm election in that state in years. But Democrats are not counting him out, and they, and they think that it's tied. Republicans think that that uh, Marsha Blackburn's got a bit of a lead. Uh, Heidi Heitkamp is really the only Democrat that Democrats think is probably done. But even some of that, you know, even she's not being totally counted off by Democrats. And in, on the other side, there's some Republican seats that Democrats are hoping to pick up. Nevada looks good for them. Arizona looks very tight. And part of that was you know, Martha McSally, the Republican in that race, is, is a very strong candidate, but had to deal with some real hardline anti-immigrant uh, Tea Party types in the primary, including Joe, Joe Arpaio and Kelly Ward, uh, and ran hard right to ward them off, and then kind of stayed there, surprisingly, in the general election. That, and I don't think that's necessarily been helpful for her. But you know, Kirsten Sinema, who she's running against, is. is spent a ton of money portraying herself as this very moderate, working across the aisle, uh, blue dog Democrat, which she has been in, in Congress, but she, before that, was a very lefty Green Party activist, anti-war activist, who said some th kind of harsh things about Republicans. And uh, you may, made a joke that was caught on video that Republicans are now using in ads, uh, talking about you know, states of laboratories of democracy. Arizona seems like the meth lab of democracy. Probably not helpful <laughs> if you're trying to win over you know, GOP-leaning independent in this right. state. Uh, and so that race is tightened. I probably think cinema grinds it out there, but it's unclear. There's just a lot of margin of error races on the Senate side. And one, one, thing that I, one thing that I know, you mentioned with Heller, you know, we both know there's this guy, John Ralston, who uh, is like the dean of political reporters in Nevada. A uh, couple years ago, he, he broke off on his own. He now runs something called the Nevada Independent, which is, you know, it's one of these, it, it's a independent news organization uh, that I believe is, is, is structured as a nonprofit. Um, you know, certainly if you are in Nevada or interested in, in Nevada politics, definitely worth like subscribing or whatever their kind of donor framework, blah, 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 blah is. But, um, and I'm sure you saw he's this. Terrific. Yeah, no, he's it. And, and that for a, a weird set of reasons, that state is one where they really have experience looking at the early vote and 
you know, not knowing certainly what's going to happen, but knowing who's in the driver's seat going into Election Day. And I guess it was, I don't know if it was yesterday or Saturday, he, he did sort of, you know, his roundup of the final uh, final look at the early vote. And he basically, you know, he's not saying it's, it's, it's a certainty, but he thinks that the Republicans, both on the Senate and the gubernatorial side, you know, or kind of have their backs up against the wall and really need to have a, you know, a very strong election day performance to pull it out. And so that put um, that put that race made it seem like a better situation for the Democrats that may, than maybe just the polls did. Yeah. And, and you know, in all fairness, the Republican strategists I've talked to there. Uh, are a little more bullish about it than Ralston, who basically is saying it's a done deal. Okay. But I, I'm looking at the same early vote numbers he is, and the numbers look very good for Democrats. Basically, what they need to do is run up huge turnout in Clark County, which is about two thirds of the state's population. It's Las Vegas and its suburbs, and it's where you know most of the Hispanic voters in the state live, which are a huge chunk of vote. Uh, Philip, large Filipino community there, which tends to vote pretty heavily Democratic. It's where the unions are, and it's where these suburban female voters that, that are fed up with President Trump are largely, although it's interesting, Washoe County in the north, uh, which is it was usually Heller's base around Reno, Democrats are have fought the Republicans to a tie there, uh, which shows there's something going on with, with uh, suburban voters up there, too. Uh, Heller has had huge numbers in, in the rural counties, but there just aren't as many voters up there. So it's just tougher for him to pull it out. And he's been caught crossways. And he's one of the few Republicans on the Senate side who have this tough position where President Trump is not popular in his state, but he still needs Trump's base to win. And we saw uh, the you know Trump narrowly lost the state in 2016. Uh, Heller had been critical of Trump. He got, you know, he was kind of wishy-washy about how he was going to vote on an Obamacare repeal. He got a real primary from Danny Tarkanian, who's now running for the House, basically bear-hugged Trump as a result. And even though Tarkanian's dropped out, he's basically had to keep Trump by his side and keep him close throughout this election. And, you know, he'd been a relatively moderate Republican, kind of a, a sunny, friendly, inoffensive Republican that, you know, can win in that state. And this has hurt him there. And so, unlike most other Senate races, Trump is a net negative, a clear net negative for Heller in that race. And it's, he's really struggled with how to handle him throughout the race. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, the one pickup I'm pretty confident predicting, I, I think it's going to be close, but I would put money on Jackie Rosen over Dean Heller there. So let's, so the, the one race we haven't talked about is the one that, every Democrat in the country is funding, which is Beto O'Rourke in Texas. Now, in the last week or so, there has definitely been a, a, a tightening in the polls. Um, and well, OK, so what do you make of that race at this point? I've been very bearish on Beto O'Rourke for the last couple of months. He raised a ton of money. He, I, for a while over the summer, I thought he had a real shot. Ted Cruz has been up outside the margin error against him for the entirety of the race, basically. And we haven't really seen O'Rourke's numbers moved up. That being said, I'm seeing something pretty amazing in Texas. They already, their early vote has already surpassed their entire vote from 2014. Yeah, which is stunning. And so Beto O'Rourke needed to do two things. He needed to fundamentally change what the electorate looked like. And he needed huge crossover support. And, and I'll add a third. He needed much higher Hispanic vote than we've seen in past midterms for Democrats there. And two of those things seem to be happening. The Hispanic vote still doesn't look great. It's, it's up, but it's not up dramatically higher than the white vote in the state. Uh, and he does seem to be generating insane enthusiasm in bigger cities and suburbs uh, for his campaign, including some places that are traditionally more Republican-leaning, like the Dallas and Houston suburbs. So I still think it's unlikely, but I am no longer writing off that race in the way that I was about two weeks ago, where I was basically saying he, he needs to do something unprecedented. I'm seeing something unprecedented there. And that doesn't give him a likely win, but I think that, that put that race back on the map in my mind. I think that Tennessee is actually probably that. still a better shot for Democrats. I think Phil Vredesen 
um, is running a very strong race there. But I, I could, I'm not discount. I mean, I think all of these races are close. I think that race looks less close than a lot of others, but there's also something weirder happening there. And I'm not exactly sure how that plays out. The the one thing, and this is again, it's it's we all have to be careful when we look at elections to you know bracket our our hopes from our analysis of the of the facts in front of ourselves. One thing, but one thing I noticed, and 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 I'm not the only one because I actually I actually uh, it it's Jennifer Duffy who is is the name of the woman who who does the Senate for the Cook Report, right? Am I? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is something that she flagged and is is one of the reasons that she had sort of, you know, unlike a lot of other prognosticators, uh, prognosticators, not exactly the right way to put it. I mean, it's not like, you know, Jimmy the Greek or something like that. You know, people who election analysts had kept the Texas race as a toss up. And to be clear, People use toss-up to mean different things. I don't think she ever yeah. thought it was like a 50-50 thing. But th- so th- they use the t- term a little differently. But in any case, still, it was a significant thing that she was keeping it and has kept it in the toss-up category for the Koch political report. And the, one of the keys is that Ted Cruz does not have his own get-out-the-vote operation. He has basically, whether you want to call it outsourced it or kind of joined in with Governor Abbott's get out the vote operation. And, you know, it, as you've said, Cam, with many of these, uh, many of the uh, data points in this cycle, you know, you, it cuts both ways. It's a Republican state. Abbott's a very successful politician. He's probably, to a great degree, inherited the machine that has, you know, dominated Texas for the last 25 years. Yeah, um, I think he's even built a better machine. I, yeah. He, his, he had a, a really, a really crushing, impressive showing in 2014, which I'm sure Democrats you know, so fondly remember Wendy Davis, who was supposed to be the Democrat who so, suddenly turned Texas purple. Right. Uh, you know, I think Beto O'Rourke has done a lot of things that Wendy Davis failed to do uh, in terms of actually energizing voters um, and, and raising the money that he needed to compete. Uh, but yeah, Cruz, Cruz is dependent on the Texas Republican Party, which is a very strong organization. Uh, but but also hasn't had Republicans, a, yeah. and some of those Republicans are Beto voters. Right. They're they're going to be avid Beto voters that Republicans are turning out. And I don't think a ton, but enough that that could be an interesting factor. So, you know, I I, I mean, I, I, there's kind of the two buckets of the most interesting races because of the personalities and the candidates, and the races that I think are the closest. This is obviously an interesting race. I don't think it's the closest one. But if we wake up on Wednesday morning and Democrats have the Senate, Texas or Tennessee needs to happen for that right. to happen. Right. Unless, unless Democrats pull out a miracle in North Dakota. And so, you know, those are races that we should be talking about. And obviously we are. Uh, I, I still think that Bredesen's more likely than O'Rourke to be a senator at the end of the day. What, what, what struck me there, though, is that it... Republican state, strong Republican machine, but it's also true that that I well, I'm not sure. I think it's been a good 25 years before since a Democrat has won a statewide election, and that and over time, that has to affect the dominant party's approach to to GOTV operations. You know, he does. I mean, and 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 Abbott is is I think he's like. A good twenty points ahead of his. So basically, he he is cruising to reelection with like no, not the slightest doubt. So that is another thing that kind of got my attention. That Cruz has hitched his wagon to a race that is not even a race. So you know, can cut either way, and, yeah, and you know, I, mean, I, you know, I think Ted Cruz's team is one of the best in the country. I, I, they are doing their own turnout as well. I think that's they're not solely dependent on the Texas Republican Party, but mm-hmm. they, they are certainly looking to them uh, to some degree. And you know, the big difference between governors and senators' races is that governors can raise unlimited sums. So Abbott just has a lot more money than Cruz, even though Cruz has been a strong fundraiser. And so interesting okay. that changes things in terms of, of how turnout operations can operate, but. Uh, you know, I, I mean, Ted Cruz, obviously. So that would be a logic to him sort of, again, outsourcing kind of gives a pejorative uh, 
cast to it. But that would create a logic that he just has tons of money so he can fund it much more easily, much much more efficiently than the cruise campaign. So cruise campaign focuses on air war and stuff like that and 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 leaves not yeah. leaves it to have it but frankly, puts it in a lot of it's just so damn big yeah. that turn out ground game only matters so much because we're talking about 20 different media markets and you know it's the second largest state by population in the country and so the idea that you're going to be able I mean wow, is it really 20 is it really 20 media markets I that's think a, it might be more I think it might once you count all, all the ones that like overlap with Oklahoma it's like 23 interesting interesting um, I've been told you know, a week of saturation advertising there is upwards of $15 million a week. And so we're talking about Beto O'Rourke raising $70 million. That's a lot of money. But when you're talking about reaching into every media market in the state, that you know you need minimum $10 million a week on advertising. Right. And so, and then that's not even talking. I mean, I, I've heard that, I haven't confirmed it, but I've heard that Beto O'Rourke has about 700 field staff in the state. That's... You know, a couple of dozen in some of these mid-sized cities. Right. And, you know, in, in the Rio Grande Valley, which is where the largest Hispanic population is, uh, which often doesn't turn out in midterms and often doesn't even turn out at very good levels of presidential levels, that only goes so far. And so a lot of it's about base enthusiasm. And O'Rourke has clearly activated even some, you know, Republican-leaning but suburban voters. Uh, Austin's on fire for him. Uh, parts of Dallas and Houston, but I haven't seen that necessarily translate into a lot of excitement with Hispanic voters. But right. you know, election will tell. Right. So we're finishing up. So our, our, name a few races that you think maybe sort of sleeper races that that people haven't been and and. It almost has to be in the House or governor's races, since obviously there's only we everybody's looked at the Senate races every single possible way. What are what are some races that may not be high on people's radars that that you think are possible surprises on election night? Yeah, well, we talked about uh, Don Young and, and Steve King. I've, I've, I'm keeping a close eye on both of them. Um, on the governor's side, Democrats have a real opportunity of winning the South Dakota governor's race. Christy Nome uh, is well-liked in D.C., but she's kind of underwhelmed on the trail a little bit. And she's facing off against Billy Sutton, who's this Democrat who uh, is, is in a wheelchair because he was a rodeo, like professional rodeo rider who broke his back in an accident. And it's kind of like, you can't get much more South Dakota than that. Yeah, and that's like MMA or like NASCAR for South Dakota, right? It, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it's kind of made for ads. You know, it's perfect. And it's made for I'm not your normal Democrat in a state where that's important. Right. And Democrats think they're going to win there. If they have, you know, it's very, very close. But that's a kind of under-the-radar sleeper race. Uh, and, and another race that I don't think is a sleeper, but people haven't really been paying much attention to, but the Iowa governor's race is very close. I think the Democrat Fred Hubble is going to pull that out against Kim Reynolds. Obviously, that, that has a lot of import for uh, where the presidential goes in 2020. Uh, he could be a real kingmaker in the, the, the caucuses, but also, you know, that's a state that Obama won comfortably twice and Trump won comfortably, and it's a sign that it might be snapping back towards Democrats. And so I think that's pretty interesting. Obviously, Georgia has been talked to death, um, but I think that's a very obviously a, a very important test. Uh, and, and Stacey Abrams has, like in Texas, generating huge early turnout, huge black turnout. Younger voters are turning out at historic rates. I, I, my gut tells me that probably goes to a runoff, but I'd probably rather, if anybody's going to win without with avoiding a runoff where you have to get 50% in that state, I would bet she would do it over Brian Kemp. Um, although I think there's a good chance that we're looking at a, a December 4th runoff there. So there are a couple. So uh, is it, there's like a libertarian running too? What's, what's, who's the... Yeah, know. there's a libertarian. I, I feel like there might be one other candidate on the ballot too. The libertarians have been polling around 2 2.5%, which is historically about what they pull there. Uh, every single public and private poll I've seen, or quality public and, and all of the private polls I've seen, have it a two-point race one way or the other. And that's been true since about two weeks after Kemp won his primary runoff. And so what the electorate looks like matters a ton there. And if it's 49, 47 at the end of the day, then we're looking at a runoff, which completely changes how things feel. But 
the early vote turnout for African Americans and younger voters has been bonkers. And if she can sustain that, I think that's a big if on election day. And the electorate has about you know, 32% African Americans as opposed to the 28% we saw in 2014, I think she could pull it off. And, and just for, for our listeners, uh, you know, there's a lot of different factors, but it probably gets harder for her in a runoff because libertarian, presumably those are going to go to Kemp more than to her. Is that yeah, broadly I think broadly even more accurate? than that. I mean, it's just, you know, it's harder for Democrats to turn out their voters, especially when you're talking about these infrequent voters uh, in the state. And so it just becomes trickier you know, to to do what she's done, which is pretty spectacular in terms of her field operation, twice. Like again, and, a month later, basically. Yeah, and head, and right after Thanksgiving and heading into the holidays. Right. It's just a tough time. Not an impossibility, but uh, it's a tougher lift. Um, you know, if, if she ends up a couple points ahead of him in the first round, I think that's a very competitive race. If Brian Kemp ends up leading her in the first round of balloting, I think that's a very tough lift for her. Right, right. Okay. Well, listen. We we have uh, hopefully we have we have sated uh, everybody's uh, hunger for the fine <laughs> the final tea leaf reading and and it is a big map this year. There's yeah. No. It's really and 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 I can't you you you've really captured this cam, but I I can't stress enough how many races are very very close and the kinds of races that could totally go either way on election day. I mean, when you when you have when you've got all the quality polls saying a race is within a sort of a two point bound that that is it's not even just it's not even just margin of error in a statistical sense about polling. It 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 goes to, you know, uh, it, it goes to even even making relatively accurate predictions about the shape of the electorate that those could just go any way and there's so many and you know enough to enough to have uh you know republicans come out on you know the day after saying like wow we you know it, it looked like we were going to take a beating and and we took a few hits but we we basically came out in one piece or just getting decimated and 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 you know losing, you know, maybe 50 seats in the House and, and possibly losing the Senate. So there's just there's such a wide range of, yeah. of possibilities. And I would say that Democrats not picking up the Senate is, and not losing seats in the Senate is a very good night for them. They had 10 incumbents in Trump states, just one Republican incumbent in the state Trump lost. And so this is, this is already looking like a victory for Democrats on the Senate level, assuming that things don't slip and all of a sudden they're losing, you know, two, three seats in the Senate, which is, I think, almost as likely as them taking the Senate at this point. Yeah. But we're talking about Democrats winning potentially as many as a dozen or more governorships and rebuilding their strength across the states and and having a real voice in policy in a lot of big states, a lot of swing states, uh, Michigan, Ohio, Florida, these are important places. Right. And if they can flip the House, which I think is likely, and win all these governorships and minimize their losses, you know, you can spin it however you want. That's a very good night for Democrats. Right, right. Okay, well, let's uh, uh, find, just to remind everybody, uh, the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Uh, Cam, thank you so much. I mean, you, you, I, you know, I, I have all these like incohate opinions, and it, so it's really good when I can talk to someone who actually knows all the details. So, thank you so much, and uh, well, let's all get ready for uh, election night. It'll be, it'll be a late night, and it'll be one with uh, a lot of emotions for a lot of people. We just don't know who's going to have which yet. <laughs> but thanks so much, Cam, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Josh. All right. Thanks so much, and we will uh, we'll, we will almost certainly have another episode uh, of the podcast later this week when we know kind of what's going on. So uh, talk to you soon. Bye, Josh. Later. <laughs>